All right, take your Bibles tonight, turn to 1 Kings chapter number 18. 1 Kings chapter number 18, and uh, it is great to be back here. Um, you know, I do have to say, uh, growing up here in Central Florida and then marrying a girl from Southern California, a lot of people looked at us funny when we said we lived in Wisconsin. And um, they just said, I don't really understand why, why you went up that way. So I will say we do feel a little bit more at home um, down here in, uh, in Florida. It, the temperature's a little bit more what we're used to. Now, you know, I, came, I know that we've come right at the beginning of the summertime when everything gets really, really hot. Um, and so that's just, I guess, that's, that's our, our burden to, to carry. We, you know, when we came to Wisconsin, it was really, really cold. We got there in the middle of uh, the winter, really, is when we landed. So I feel like wherever we go, we, just, we never come in the right time. You know, we never come when it's beautiful and and uh, the weather's perfect outside, but we'll get with that. We're, we're so thankful. So many of you have been so friendly to us already, so welcoming, and I, I really do appreciate that. I know that you're really just putting on a face for me, um, and you're actually really just being nice to my wife, but because I'm married to her, you're being kind to me as well. I get that, but, um, but we really do. We really, really do appreciate it. Now, before I get into this message, I'm going to preach a simple message tonight, but I have to give um, a little bit of a confession. A pastor asked me maybe uh, two weeks ago um, about preaching tonight, and he, he mentioned that tonight was going to be, he said, I'd like to have you preach on Sunday night. He said, it's going to be 30-second testimony night. And, um, you know, he mentioned earlier about me maybe preaching for an hour. Well, I was under the misconception that I only had 30 seconds to preach before the bell went off. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to get this message down to that 30-second period of time. I don't know that I have very much for you tonight. No. Um, I'm kidding, but we are going to take, we won't, it certainly won't be an hour tonight. First Kings chapter number 18. And um, uh, I like to start, if I can, uh, my sermons off with funny stories. I, I preach to teenagers most of the time, and I find that when preaching to teenagers, you know, it's good to engage them with something funny. And um, uh, I've, I've heard around here recently that if you make stories about zip lines, then it's really great. It goes over really well, and people just keep talking about it, and they don't stop. And so uh, I started to think through, I was talking to my wife, and I thought, you know, do I have any funny stories about a zip line? And I, I thought, you know, I really don't. I mean, I know that, that, um, that Brother Joe, when he comes down the zip line, you know, for him it doesn't stop. For me, it's probably the other problem, like a gust of wind comes, and I get stuck about halfway in between. Um, that's, that's a, I don't really have a story that goes along with that, but, but I do have something that I think I can share. And it's, it's just interesting how two people can have very different, uh, they can have the same experience but come out having very different uh, perspectives on what happened. I remember um, I, I was a, grew up, my, my stepfather's side of the family lived in Dixon, Tennessee, a little town outside of Nashville. And we grew up there uh, every, every, you know, so often we'd go back up and we'd spend time. And my uncle um, had a large pool uh, in his backyard. And um, it, when, it, when we'd go there, if it was during the summertime, you know, or if it was warm in the spring, that was the best time to get out there and take advantage of that pool. And, and I remember I was probably six at the time. And uh, I, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I can't really swim very well. Um, I know I've grown up in Florida. I should know how to swim, but I just, I, I can't. Well, I shouldn't say that. I can swim, but I can't really float. That's sort of my problem. And so I hop in the water and then just blah, 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 kind of go down to the bottom. So I was out there with my uncle. It was a beautiful summer day, and he was uh, just kind of floating along in the pool there on his back, you know, doing the backstroke and just enjoying the breeze and the clouds and the sun and all of those wonderful wonderful things that come along with a summer day in a nice pool. And I was over in the shallow end, which I'm not very tall now, but when I was six, I was even shorter, believe it or not. And, and because of that, the shallow end was still kind of deep for me. And I had those little floaties on my arms. How many of you remember, you will admit that you've used those little floaties before on your arms? Okay, we've got a couple honest people in the crowd, uh, but that was me. I had those little floaties, and I remember I was in the pool, and I was looking over at my uncle as he was floating along there, and I thought to myself, man, I wish I could do that. And so, you know, being a six-year-old and watching him sort of floating his back, I decided to try to lean back and pull my feet up. And sure enough, I could get my feet up to the top of the pool, but then pretty soon it would just kind of go back down. And I tried this maybe two or three times, and finally, after trying it several, several different times, I looked over at my uncle, and I just realized that it wasn't working. And I suddenly got this ingenious idea. Now, my wife will tell you that whenever I have an ingenious idea, it's really not that ingenious. In fact, it's usually pretty dumb. But, but at the time, I had this ingenious idea, and I said, you know what? I have a problem here. When I put my feet up, they just go back down. 
but I have these two little floaty things on my arms and they do a great job of keeping my arms afloat. And so if I pull these guys off and put them on my ankles, then I'm sure I'll be able to float on my back. So the next thing you know, I, I to get out of the pool, I take the floaties off, I put them on my ankles, I'm all ready to go. I jump back into that pool and sure enough, my feet went up. The problem was is they didn't just stop at halfway. They kind of kept going and kept going and kept going until my six-year-old self was upside down in the pool, kicking and flailing around, you know, drowning for my life. Of course, here's my uncle over on the other side of the pool, just still swimming along, enjoying the breeze and the warm, sunny day, staring up at the sky. has no idea that his nephew's about to drown in the other shallow end of the pool, but it, whatever, he's, he's enjoying it. And so <clears throat> eventually... I was able to get the floaties off my feet, and, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm here today to tell you the story. But that's about, that's about all I got. You know, it's funny that people can, can go through the same experience. We were both in the pool that day. We were both enjoying a, a wonderful time, but we came out of there with two very different perspectives. And as we look at this passage here in 1 Kings chapter number 18, we're coming to a story of two individuals, two men of God, who lived during the same time period, who lived during the same crisis, who lived during the same political time, and yet in their time in Israel, they had very different perspectives. I want to share with you today the story of Elijah and Obadiah. And I'd like to preach you a message tonight entitled, The Difference in a Difference Maker. The Difference and a difference maker. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we love you, and God, we're so thankful for who you are, and Lord, the fact that you're an, a never-changing God. Lord, we live in an ever-changing world. Uh, God, uh, the news media today will say something completely different than it'll say tomorrow, and it'll say something different the next day. And Lord, every day there's, there's developments, there's changes, our lives change, but yet, Lord, you never do, and your word never does. And so, God, as we look into your word today, this word that's been true from the beginning, um, Lord, and this, this word that's been uh, written down, uh, and this story that, Lord, has spoken to hearts over generations, I pray that once again today that you would use this to speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you use this to make a difference in us, and Lord, would you then empower us to make a difference in others. Lord, we love you, we thank you for your truth, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter number 18, verse number 1, the Bible says this, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this story, at this time, Israel is under the dominion of a very, very wicked king, King Ahab. He's a man who worshipped Baal and idols, a man who was completely um, away from God and who had taken the, um, uh, the country, if you will, of Israel, the nation of Israel, in a direction that was completely away from God. Christianity or uh, biblical living during this time in Israel would not have been the norm. It wouldn't have been what was accepted. It was not what was popular or what anybody was doing. And at this point, Elijah, one of the prophets of God, had gone to Ahab back in the very beginning of, verse number seven, of chapter number 17. And the Bible says that when he came to Ahab, here's what he said. He said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And Elijah had come to Ahab and he had basically said, Ahab, because of your sinful actions and because of the sinful actions of Israel, there's going to be absolutely no water, no rain for the next several years until I give the go-ahead. Now, Elijah didn't know when God was going to end the drought, but he knew God was going to end it. And finally, the time came and God told Elijah, okay, it's time. Arise, it's been three years, go to Ahab, this wicked king, and uh, tell him what I would have you to tell him, and I'm going to send rain upon the earth. And Elijah, verse 2, we pick back up the story, and the Bible says, And Elijah went to show himself in Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now, the word governor would mean overseer. Obadiah was essentially the man who took care of Ahab's affairs. He was, um, uh, many would say that he was maybe his second in command, or at least very high up in the political hierarchy in Israel at this time. And the Bible says that Obadiah was the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah feared 
the Lord greatly. That's an important verse to remember. The Bible says in chapter, or verse number four, for it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab sent unto, uh, said unto Obadiah, go into the land, unto all the fountains of water and unto all the brooks, pre-adventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them, passing throughout it, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Verse 7, And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him. And he fell on his face, and he said, Art thou my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go tell thy lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now it's interesting to me that he refers to him, Ahab here, and he says, Go tell thy lord. Go tell thy lord. Well, will come into play in a little bit. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldest deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when uh, they said he is not here, he took an oath of the kingdom in that nation, and they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go and tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so that I shall come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, and he shall slay me. But, but I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, when, uh, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, go and tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, as the, Lord of hosts liveth before, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. We look at these two lives, Elijah and Obadiah, and we see such stark contrast in the way that they lived. We see such stark contrast in really ultimately the difference that they made. I mentioned earlier about how two people can have the same experience and come out with two different outcomes. I heard a story about two young boys and um, they were, uh, uh, I believe they were in foster care and they ended up um, in um, uh, this, this living situation that was really, really terrible. And basically what happened was their foster parents would lock them in a closet and they would beat them and do all these different terrible things to them. And they did this really throughout their lives from the moment they got them as little children all the way up until they were 18. And years later, a reporter got wind of the story, and she went and she interviewed these two men, now grown men, and to see what they had done with their lives. And one of them had become a very wealthy financial Fortune 500 CEO. He was a successful guy. And when she went and she interviewed him, she said, well, what is it that, that made you so successful? What is it that, that brought you to this point in your life? And he said, well, when I was a kid, my parents locked me in a closet and they beat me. And he said, and, and I went through that for the entirety of my young uh, childhood years. And he said, when I finally turned 18 and I left that house, I made a decision that I would do everything in my power to prove my parents wrong, to tell them I wasn't worthless, to tell them to, to make a name for myself. And I went out there and I worked hard and now I'm successful. I am who I am. And she went and interviewed the, the twin brother of this uh, boy and, and, and looked at him. And this man was not a Fortune 500 CEO. He was actually a drunk. He was a drug addict living in basically in abject poverty. And when she talked to him, she asked him the same question. She said, why is it that you, uh, you know, have ended up this way? And he said, well, it's because my parents. Because when we were kids, we ended up in this foster home, and they stuck me in a closet, and they did these things to me. And I've just lived believing that I was worthless for the rest of my life. Two people, same circumstances, same crisis in their life, if you will, but very, very different paths. And I wonder today, as God looks through Ocala, Florida, as God looks through Central Baptist Church, and he begins to look at the lives of the people here and all that's gone on in 2020 and in 2021, all of the stresses, all of the struggles, all of the crisis, all of the problems, the financial difficulties, the political scene, the, the issues, the health, um, the real challenges of, 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 of health problems that we've had, and all of these different things. The list can go on and on and on and on and on. I wonder if when we get to heaven, if God will look at some of us and he'll say, well, that was an excuse. And yet look at others of us and say, well, you know what, you really 
rose to the challenge. You lived by faith and I have accomplished some great things. Because the truth of the matter is, is that no matter what the circumstances are, God has a plan. You see, God's not surprised by financial problems. Tomorrow the stock market could crash um, in, a, in a, a way that would be irrevocably uh, unchangeable. But the reality is God wouldn't be surprised by that. And God's will wouldn't suddenly stop for your life because that happened. You know, uh, God forbid, but there could be a fire here and our church building could burn down one day. Well, does that mean that the work of God is going to stop at Central Baptist Church and Ocala Christian Academy because we lost a physical property? Now, no doubt it would be hindered. It would be a huge, huge problem. But God's will wouldn't suddenly stop. And so why is it that some people, when they go through crisis, they come out the other end stronger and better forward, seeing victories of faith? And why is it that other people, when they go through the same situations, they come out the other end defeated and destroyed? The Bible says in Jude chapter 1 and verse number two and if, uh, 22, and if some have compassion, making a difference. I'd like to look here at a couple quick examples of difference makers in the Bible. I think about Daniel and the king's meat. Daniel was a boy who had every excuse in the world to not serve God. He was taken from his home. He was drugged to a foreign land. Nobody in the world would have cared if Daniel had chosen to follow the Bible or not. And yet the Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart, I'm not going to partake of the king's meat. Now this is interesting because nobody, none of the other Jewish boys were doing that. So it wasn't even like it was just this group of Jewish boys that were holding on to this tradition. No, it was only Daniel who made a decision and said, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm going to be different. And because of that reason, we see Daniel making an incredible difference in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and ultimately in the lives of thousands later on through his testimony. I think about Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. You think about how many people were in bondage and, and how many years they were there. And, and day after day after day, they began to struggle and struggle and struggle. But it wasn't until Moses said, you know what, I'm going to follow God and do what God's called me to do. Even though he tried to make some excuses, he tried to make some complaints. I can't speak very well, Lord. I can't do it. There, there's no reason why it's going to work for me. But finally, when Moses surrendered and said, okay, God, I'm going to stop making excuses and I'm going to start doing what you told me to. God used him to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt and do an incredible, incredible work. Think about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The people of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for years at that point. And finally, Nehemiah said, it's time for somebody to do something. And doing a very brave and daring thing, he prayed to the God of heaven and he went to the king and he asked leave if he could go and go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the walls. And by faith, you read the story in the book of Nehemiah, a lot of struggles and hardships he went through doing that, but he saw God bring him through. I think about John the Baptist preaching the baptism of repentance in a time when the Pharisees ruled the religious sector. They were the big names. John the Baptist wasn't anybody. He was a country preacher. Literally lived in the country. Nobody uh, even really knew. He was a weird guy. He dressed strange. He ate weird things. He was unusual. And, and if there was anybody, if you had looked at him and said, you can't preach, nobody's going to follow you. You don't, John the Baptist following on Twitter was like zero people, you know what I mean? I mean, nobody cared about John the Baptist. He was, he was somebody with zero influence. He was somebody with nothing to offer except that he had a fire shut up in his bones. And that he preached the Word of God with passion. And when he began to preach the Word of God, unlike the Pharisees that said the words of men, suddenly things begin to change and people begin to realize that this was God. We need to listen to this guy. I think about Peter at Pentecost, a man who had failed Jesus in a great way, a man who had really in so many ways had problem after problem and failure after failure and finally decided, Lord, I'm going to preach. I'm a fisherman. I'm not learned. I've got no qualifications, but I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And suddenly we see God using Peter to lead the, the church in the book of Acts and, and, and bring the church of Jerusalem forward. And finally, probably the greatest difference maker of all, Jesus, who came to this earth and lived for 33 and a half years, a sinless, perfect life, and one day died on the cross and cried out, it is finished, paying for the sins of the world. A difference maker. And I want to simply say this tonight, is those whom God uses to make a difference in the lives of others are often those who have first allowed God to make a difference in them. Let me say that again. 
Those whom God uses to make a difference in the lives of others are often people who have first allowed God to make a difference in them. And I want to simply ask you this question. As you're going through these struggles tonight, as you're having family issues, as you have wayward children that are, or grandchildren that are away from God that aren't uh, doing what they need to do, as you're maybe having a marriage that's, that's beginning to break apart, as you're having loss of loved ones in your, in your lives, as you're having financial crisis and you're beginning to wonder how are we going to pay the bills and how are we going to do this, as you're struggling uh, personally with depression or, or uh, with doubt or with fear or, or whatever it is tonight, I wonder, are you allowing God to make a difference in you through this time? Or are you just saying, well, my life's just not what I hoped it would be and I guess I'm going to have to live However, and then let me take this a step further and say, are you making a difference for Jesus Christ? If you were to die tonight, we often ask the question, if you die tonight, would you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? Let me ask you this question. If you die tonight and you know you're on your way to heaven, how much difference would your life have made in the time until now? Or would you have regrets? Things I wish I'd gotten around to doing. Things I wish I hadn't to put off. Tonight, I'd like to show you very quickly a simple message, three distinctions in the life of a difference maker. Number one, we see, first of all, that a difference maker is committed to the Word of God. A difference maker is committed to the Word of God. We see here in this passage that Obadiah was uh, complacent, but Elijah was committed. Obadiah was complacent, but Elijah was committed. In the first part of this passage, it's interesting to notice that both of these men experienced the problems of Israel at the exact same time. Obadiah and Elijah lived during the same time period of Israel. There was the same political pressure on Obadiah as there was on Elijah. There was the same problems with Obadiah that there was with Elijah. But there was one major difference. Elijah had made it up in his mind that I don't care what anybody says and I don't care what anybody does, but I'm going to stay committed to the Word of God both with my life and with my mouth. I'm going to both stay committed to the Word of God in how I live on a daily basis, but I'm also going to stay committed to the Word of God with how I preach. I'm not going to stand around and I'm not going to pander to Ahab and Jezebel and what they want to hear. I'm not going to pander to the priests and the prophets and what they have to say. I'm not going to give up and say, well, yeah, we can add Baal or we can maybe compromise in this way or that way, but I'm going to stay committed to the Word of God. And one of the exciting things about coming back to Central Baptist Church after having been gone for a while is to see that Central Baptist Church is still committed to the Word of God. It's exciting to see that all of this time, you know, uh, from when I was just uh, a, a freshman in high school that got saved and then started coming to church here sitting down uh, in one of the pews, seeing the same uh, Bible being preached up here. I've been to churches all over the country in evangelism, and a lot of things change really quickly. Being the same uh, standards of music being preached here, the same uh, standards of dress being preached here, the same truth of the Word of God being preached here. And why is that important? It's important because there's so many churches today that compromise, that go different directions. And what they do is they say, well, you know what? We can just kind of add this in. We can add in bail. It's not that big of a deal. Or maybe, you know what, the truth is, is that, well, the people, they really want it this way, and they really like it this way, or they, they want to have this style of worship, or they want to do this thing, or, or whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that, no, you're going to say, well, we're going to follow God. We're going to stay committed to the Word of God. And that's an exciting thing. But how tragic to have a church that's committed to the Word of God with people inside of it in their personal lives who aren't. And it's so easy in this modern day and age to become complacent. It's so easy to look at uh, just the wickedness of our life and our daily life and what we're surrounded with every single day and not give in to it and not get used to it, if I could put it that way. I remember on my father's farm up in Maryland when I was growing up, we had a well house, and, and basically what we had was we had a well there, and there was a well pump, and it was kind of underground in this little housing area, and I'll never forget as long as I live, I was a kid, and um, one day my dad said, we've got to go clean out the well house, something died in there, and I, I remember thinking, oh, that's, you know, I've never heard of that before, I was, I, I don't know, I was probably maybe 12 or 13 at the time, and I remember we opened up the door to that well house and climbed down the ladder in there, and it had rained really hard, and, and some type of animal had gotten down in there, and it had just, it had died. 
and the stench was so awful. I mean, it was so bad. I'd never smelled anything like it uh, before then. I don't know that I've smelled anything like it since then. It was just really, really, really bad. And I I mean, smelling anything like it since then, that includes living in a dormitory with a whole bunch of 18-year-old guys who never washed their clothes. I mean, I I really, it it was that bad. And so, uh, you know, it was, just, it was this disgusting, disgusting stench. And uh, my uh, brother-in-law, he's a police officer. A lot of people tell you when police officers start their training and they come upon their first dead body, a lot of times they'll, they'll lose their lunch, to put it that way. Uh, they're not used to it. They, they, you know, they, they show up on a scene and there's a crime scene and maybe there's something really horrific that's happened. And for the first time, they, they see a body that's not just like somebody got shot, but it's been there for a little while and they just, they just can't handle it. And the reason I, I share that is because I spoke with a man once and he was worked on the cleanup crew on highways. Uh, he would go out to highways and if there was a bad accident, he would clean it up. And sometimes that involved really, really bad accidents where people would have lost their lives. And, and he, he said, you know, he goes, um, I've been doing this for whatever it is, 25, 30 years. And he said, I, it really doesn't bother me anymore. He says, I hate to say that, but it just doesn't. It's just what we have to deal with every single day. He goes, you know, if I show up and there's a tragic accident, he goes, for me, it's, it's, not, it's not really that big of an issue. And as I thought about that, and I remembered when I first that animal and just how sick it made me feel in my stomach, I remember thinking, well, you know, that makes sense. If you were around that every single day, eventually you'd kind of get used to it. Hey, Christian, does sin still make you sick? You see, when, when we walk with God, because sin makes God sick, when we walk with God and we get to know God, we begin to uh, live for the things of the Lord, and we suddenly become sensitive to what God's sensitive to. The Bible says that this world is dead in trespasses and sins, and so the reality is, is that we live around dead things every single day. We live in a world that's, that's dead to God, that has no interest in the things of God. And not only that, but frankly, most of what they do on a daily basis is an abomination to a holy God. And yet we live in that. And does that ever grieve us? Or have we become complacent? Because Obadiah was a, was a man who feared God. Obadiah was a man who was, was living for the Lord, and then he was stuck in a rough situation, and he had to make a choice. Do I, do, I, do I commit myself to the Word of God, or do I allow myself to kind of go undercover with King Ahab? And then what ended up happening is because he came undercover, he began to be around all of these things on a regular basis. He became the governor of Ahab's house, which what that means is that he was around Ahab's sinful, sinful, sinful actions. And you read about Ahab and the things that he did and the things that the prophet of ba- prophets of Baal did and just how horrible they were. You know, uh, we read a little bit later with Elijah and Ahab when they have that standoff on Mount Carmel. What did all the prophets of Baal do to try to get Baal's attention? You remember? They start to cut themselves. And just they, they, would, um, uh, they would do these horrible things. They would offer their children to this God. And they would make him pass through the fire. Can you imagine that? And yet Obadiah lived in that every single day, and he became complacent. In fact, he came to the point where he could literally get by without even getting in trouble with Ahab, without raising his voice, without saying, that's not right, without saying, no, you shouldn't do that. He, he had, I'm sure, as the governor, as, as somebody as high up in the political arena as he was, I have no doubt in my mind that, that Obadiah was having to make compromising decisions every single day, and he just did it over and over and over and over. And he did it, frankly, so much that I think he had probably convinced himself that he wasn't compromising anymore. But he's probably just doing what he had to do to get by. My friend, does sin still bother you when you turn on the television and they begin to say things that you know are right? Does sin still bother you when you walk down the street and you see somebody dressed in a way that you just know doesn't really please the Lord? And I'm not saying, do you judge people? That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to walk around uh, all over the place saying, I'm holier than you, and I'm going to judge you and you and you and you and you because I'm so great and so wonderful. No, but what I'm saying is when you live in revival, when you live close with God, you begin to share God's heart. You begin to share God's value. And frankly, you become sensitive to the things of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly what happens is sin, well, that just makes you sick. I'll never forget, uh, you know, we've had uh, pastors done such a great job of having so many different evangelists in here. And I remember when I was a teenager making decisions and really getting thoroughly right with God sometimes. 
having some weeks where maybe uh, like Tom Farrell would come through and, and he, I mean, he just hit you, you know, right between the eyes every night. You had a new message that was just barreling down on you and you'd go forward and it was just kind of like, oh, Lord, what else is there? You know, I thought I got everything right. And then you come in the next night and you find out there's a whole bunch of other things you got to get right too. And it's just kind of one thing after the other after the other. You know what I found? At the end of those weeks, when I would just really get thoroughly right with God in my soul, I would walk out the door. I remember this actually really vividly. I remember walking out the door and I remember throwing a piece of garbage at a trash can. It hit the trash can, bounced off, laid on the ground. I was going to keep walking to my car and it was like, God said, you know what? Jesus would probably pick up that trash and throw it away. That's such a little thing. It's such a little thing. We look at that and we say, well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's not a big deal. But you know, the truth is, is that when I'm not really right with God, little things like that don't bother me anymore. And frankly, the farther I get away from God, the bigger things begin to bother me less and less and less. And so tonight, let's take a little self-personal evaluation and ask this question, how close are you with the Lord? Because if sin's not making you sick, there's a really easy way to get back to it. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. In Psalm 36, 9, the Bible says, For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we shall see light. There's a little book by Roy Hessian called The Calvary Road, which is an incredible book on revival. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Hessian says when he writes that book is he talks about walking in the light as God is in the light. And here's what he says. Walking in the light is simply walking exposed. It means that there's nothing in your life hidden from God. That as sin is, 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 is committed in your life, you immediately bring it to God, you bring it up and you allow, as that verse says, the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse that sin away from you. And that's what walking in the light is. That's really all revival is, is it's just walking in fellowship with Jesus. And the reality is, is that when you walk in fellowship with Jesus and you take a step with him, he's walking right next to you. And the way that you know that you're getting away from Jesus is because as you begin to get farther and farther off the path, you take a step away from him, you take a step away from him. Because remember, God doesn't move. We're the ones that do. And so as we begin to step farther and farther away from Jesus, we get over to this path and suddenly we're not as sensitive to the things that he is. Why? Because our fellowship with him is in as sweet as it was before. I mean, there's some people who, frankly, you're probably like three football fields away yelling at Jesus when you pray to him because there's so much distance between you and God from that moment when you first got saved and you were so close. Obadiah was complacent, but Elijah was committed. Number two, we see tonight that not only is a difference maker committed to the word of God, but we see, secondly, a difference maker is compelled by the fear of the Lord. Compelled by the fear of the Lord. Obadiah was concerned, but Elijah was compelled. The greatest difference between Obadiah and Elijah was not whether or not they feared God. Because the Bible says they both did. And I've heard a lot of preachers get on Obadiah and they say, Obadiah, he was, you know, this awful compromiser. And Obadiah, he, he didn't care about the things of the Lord. And Obadiah, whatever. No, no, no. Obadiah feared the Lord. And not only does the Bible say that Obadiah feared the Lord, it says Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Obadiah's problem was not that he feared God, didn't fear God. Obadiah's problem was that he feared man as well. When you read through this passage and you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, let's jump down to um, oh, let's jump down to verse number nine. Verse number eight. And, and Elijah's talking here, and he says, And he answered him and, and said, I am, go and tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. So he's giving Obadiah this command. He says, Hey, I'm Elijah, that's who I am. Go and tell Ahab that I'm here. And notice what Obadiah says. He says, and he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldest deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Do you notice the fear there? Do you feel that when you read that passage? Here's Elijah, and he's saying, I don't care who Ahab is. Tell him I'm here. Let me go and meet with him. And Obadiah is so terrified of Ahab that he literally says to Elijah, have I sinned against you that you're going to send me to my death in the suicide mission? Did you notice that Ahab was looking for Elijah? Why? So he could kill him. 
Ahab wanted to get Elijah because he, he, Elijah was somebody that troubled Israel. Ahab hated Elijah. He was looking for any way to put an end to this loudmouth preacher that just went around trying to undermine everything Ahab was trying to do in the, in the nation of Israel. And that's what, that's what Ahab saw Elijah as. And so the problem is, is that Elijah, he's over here and he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care whether you're the king of Israel or you're um, uh, the king of, of whatever. Elijah says, I'm going to be committed to the Lord. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not concerned with the fear of man. I'm compelled by the fear of the Lord to do what I need to do and to serve God. And yet Obadiah is over here and he's so terrified. He's terrified. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. You know, the other interesting part here is that in verse number 13, Obadiah continues on and he says, Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid them an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Now, this is interesting because Obadiah did take a big risk, right? I mean, the reality is, is that if they had found out that Obadiah was feeding, and this is a hundred men, that's a lot of people to feed on a daily basis. <laughs> But if they'd found out that Obadiah was hiding these men away in a cave somewhere, then they would have killed him. No doubt. And so Obadiah's decision to go and hide these people and, and put these prophets away, that was, frankly, a, a brave act. But the problem was, is that Obadiah was so consumed with the fear of Ahab, you see him almost trying to justify himself with this good deed. You ever notice, um, I'm sure pastors experience this, that when you talk to somebody who's not really living their life the right way and you begin to bring some of these sins up, they suddenly list all the good things that they do? <laughs> well, pastor, I mean, I've been, I've been tithing, a tithing member of this church for 30 years. And you're like, well, that's great, and we don't want you to stop doing that, but what about this in your life? And what about that in your life? And We go to churches all the time where we see people that, are in the church and they, they try to throw their weight around and they say, well, you know what, I've been, I was on the founding um, uh, documents here when we signed the church constitution and we founded this place. I was there and I've been here for this many years and I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and I've done that. And hey, I'm just going to say that's all, it's a, genuinely is wonderful and it's a great thing to be faithful in those areas. But God doesn't call you to just be faithful in your church attendance and just to be faithful in your giving. God calls you to be faithful in your life. Right. And because of that, we can't be so quick to try to justify our bad actions by saying that we have these good things in our lives and that kind of makes up for it. It doesn't work to get to heaven that way, does it? You can't say, well, you know what I mean, Brother John, I'm going to heaven because I'm a pretty good guy. And I mean, I do, I do go to church and I do try to give um, every time that offering plate comes around. And I mean, you know, I read my Bible and I pray and I would say, well, that's really wonderful. But are you trusting Jesus Christ? Because if you're not trusting him, then, well, none of these things are going to make up for it. You can do all the good things you want to in the world, and it's never going to make up for your sin. The only thing that can make up for that is the blood of Jesus. Amen. But the, the issue is then we, we, we say, well, that doesn't work for salvation, but then we do the exact same thing in our personal life. Say, well, yeah, I know I've got this problem over here, and I know that I, I really struggle in this one area, but honestly, I mean, overall, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, overall, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I know that I talk about pastor behind his back and I kind of go around the church and I talk about, well, I didn't like this and I wish pastor would change this. And I, I, I kind of gossip sometimes. But frankly, though, I mean, I deserve the right to do that because, well, did you see what I gave in Faith Promise Missions last week? That's a problem. And, you know, that might work for somebody here on earth. When we get and face God one day, it's not going to fly. Because God's a holy God. No sin can stand before Him. And I don't care if you've been a member of a church for 110 years and you were born in the church and you died in the church. If you one day stand before God and you didn't live your life for Jesus Christ, you made excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse of why you wouldn't do this and why you wouldn't serve there and why you wouldn't go here and why you never gave the gospel and why you didn't have time and whatever... One day, we're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to say, I gave you a life, what did you do with it? Because I'm the one that gave it to you. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Now, I don't say that here today to say that I'm condemning somebody. I realize that the reality is, is that a lot of us have a, different, a lot of different situations in our lives. You can't be at every event at Central Baptist Church. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you could try. 
um, but I, I don't know that it's going to work out for you. You know, I realize that there is a reality here where we can't do everything, and I don't want to put under pressure on somebody who is serving the Lord with their lives because God doesn't call you to do more than you can do, but the reality is, is that when we live a life consumed by the fear of what do people say, you know, if I showed up at that, at that Monday night prayer meeting, I honestly don't even know. I, I, I haven't really prayed in public before. I'm not very good at that. So does that stop you from coming and praying for revival? You don't pray for revival because you're so worried about what five other people in a room that are showing up to pray for revival are going to think about you? Well, you know, Brother John, I mean, I would, I would love to go soul winning, but I'm really not a very good talker. I mean, I go and I knock on the door and it just doesn't go well for me. Um, you know, I try to share the gospel with people or I, 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 you know, I can't even get up and give a five-minute um, uh, essay, you know, in my English class, much less go and share the gospel with somebody else. So let me ask you this question. So does that mean that you're going to allow people around you to die and go to hell because you're so worried about what they might think if you tried to give them a gospel track and say, hey, could you read this? It's something that changed my life. Paul said these words, he said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You know, tonight, the Bible says that there are men that are compelled by the fear of the Lord. And when we hear about the fear of the Lord, we often hear that it's a, it's a reverent respect for God. And it is a reverent respect for God. But please don't mistake that the fear of the Lord also has a little bit of a tinge of actual fear. Remember the story of um, the famous preacher who stood up and preached sinners in the hands of an angry God? Why did he preach that message? Well, he preached that God's a holy God who's totally separated from sin, and one day we'll have to give an account for him. Paul understood the fear of the Lord. He had not just a reverent respect for God, but he also understood the reality of an eternal hell. And that reality of that hell and the reality of the fearful thing that it is to fall into the hands of an angry God, as the Bible says in Hebrews, understanding that Paul was compelled to go and serve the Lord and give the gospel. And he said, I don't care who you are. I don't care what's going on. I don't care how much ability I have or I don't have. I'm going to do this thing that God has told me to do. Why? Because there is a, a fear of the Lord. I, I don't remember the name, but it was the man who started the Salvation Army. His name will probably come to me at 12 o'clock tonight when I sit up right in bed. But um, he started the Salvation Army, and here's what he said. He said, I wish for just a, um, for five minutes, five minutes, that I could dangle our Christian workers at the Salvation Army out over hell. He says, because I believe that if I had five minutes to dangle them over hell, that it would change the way that we do ministry every single day. Because we don't think about that on a daily basis. We get busy in our life. We get complacent with the way that things are. We get used to the way that things happen. And we don't live in a, a life in such a way that every day we're, we're living in this fear of the Lord, understanding about who God is and what He can do and what He wants to do and what will happen to those who reject Him. Not only did you see that He was compelled by the fear of the Lord, we also see here quickly He was compelled by the, um, by the love of Christ. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us. For we thus judge that if one die, then we're all dead. And they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Elijah in this passage was compelled. He had a love for God, but he also had a fear of God. And those things motivated him to be outside of the box, to be different from anybody else, and to say, I don't care who you are or what you're doing, I'm going to serve God. And finally, we see that not only is a difference maker compelled by the fear of the Lord, we see finally that he is consumed by a passion for the Lord. He's consumed by a passion for the Lord. Obadiah was concealed, but Elijah was consumed. Obadiah was focused on hiding his faith. He didn't want anybody else to know about it. That's frankly why he was so terrified to go and tell Ahab. He was so fearful that if he went and he told Ahab who he was, his cover is going to be blown. <laughs> Everything's going to be over, and it's just going to be done. And here was Elijah in stark contrast to that, living in such a way that he said, I don't care who knows that I follow God, I'll tell everybody. In fact, so much so to the point where on Mount Carmel, uh, just a little while later when they have this face-off that Elijah stands up, and what does he do? He begins to mock the prophets of Baal. 
And he says, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's on a far journey. I don't know. You know, and he's just kind of saying that, that see, there's, there's nothing in your God that's great. God of Israel, he is the one and true God. He is the only God. And by the way, I mean, you think about this. There's probably a really good chance that they kill Elijah at the end of that whole Mount Carmel situation, right? They get out there, fire falls from heaven. It shows that God's the real God. Well, what's Ahab going to do? Just kind of accept defeat? I mean, can you imagine right now standing in front of the President of the United States and kind of embarrassing him in front of the entire nation? What do you think is going to happen after that? Probably not going to end too well for you. I'm sure the IRS will start coming after you or who knows what will happen, but they'll find something. It's not going to be a good thing. But Elijah was over here and he said, I don't care who you are. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm so uh, compelled by this passion that I have for the Lord, for the things of God, that I'm going to go ahead and do what I need to do. But Eli Obadiah, he was concealed. He was concealed. I remember, I, uh, I may have given this illustration before, but I was traveling neighborhood Bible time, great ministry and I was uh, up in Maine, and we were doing our Thursday night destination unknown. And uh, every Thursday night what we'd do is we'd go and we'd go to some place, maybe it'd be a church member's house or uh, a park somewhere or something. Kids didn't know where we were going. And um, we'd go out on a bus and we'd go and we'd, we'd do this destination unknown. We'd go out and we'd, we'd have, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers and we'd play tackle football and that kind of thing. And I remember... Um, we were doing this, uh, they began to, we went to this Christian camp at this particular church in Maine, and they had this big 35-foot cross, and they had this big open bonfire pit, and um, I remember being there, and I really like fire. Um, it's kind of a problem that I have. Uh, you know, I just, I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a pyromaniac, and so um, uh, folks at OCA administration, please never give me anything that has to do with fire. You'll probably regret it. That whole thing about, God forbid, that the church burns down, that could actually happen with me if you give me uh, too many, too many things that can light up. But, but anyway, so I, I love fire, you know, and I mean, you know, our founding fathers did too. That's why they made the 4th of July um, uh, as, a, as a holiday. You know, what are we going to do to celebrate our nation's independence? Let's blow stuff up. That sounds like a great idea. And, um, and so, you know, I just, I love fire and we got out there. And so because of my love for fire and my likelihood of, of getting myself in trouble with it, I tended to stay away from lighting the fire. When we do a bonfire, I wouldn't do it. I'd have the youth pastor, whoever do it. And so, I'm sitting over here, I'm eating hot dogs with teenagers, and we just finished playing tackle football or something. And um, they're beginning to set up this fire, and as they begin to set up this fire, they, they get these, these pallets of, of cedar wood. And they begin to stack these on top of each other for, um, for the, the bonfire, you know, for the kindling. And it was really interesting because I looked over there and I was like, well, that's neat. They're using, um, you know, they're using these, these cedar wood pallets, but they weren't just using like one or two of them. They were stacking three and four, and five, and six, and seven. Reuben is smiling in the back right now because as a youth pastor, he completely understands the idea of building a fire bigger than it needs to be for no purpose at all. And so they just keep building this thing higher and higher, and I'm looking over at this, and I'm going, this is going to be a really great fire. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. And then not only that, the youth pastor took it one step farther, and I'm sure Reuben wouldn't do this, but they took a whole bottle of lighter fluid and just started pouring it all over top of the cedar wooden pallets. Now, and I'm looking over at this, and I'm saying, this is going to be a really great fire. I mean, I couldn't have even planned it this well. This is amazing. And so sure enough, they they take that match and they drop it on that fire. <laughs> Biggest ball of fire I have ever seen that wasn't engulfing a house. I mean, it was huge. It was almost as tall as the 30-foot cross behind it. It was massive. At the end of the night, we had the teenagers like write down their decisions on decision cards and throw it into the fire. They couldn't even get close to the fire to throw it in the fire. Kids are like 20 feet away, chucking it at the fire, trying to crawl close to it. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And I learned a valuable lesson that night. I was just, as I was watching it, I was thinking about it. You notice, whenever you set something on fire, it doesn't burn at its hottest point, and the fire doesn't shine as bright as it could until the object is completely consumed, that it's burning. And so as this fire begins to engulf these cedar wooden pallets, and it's building, and it's building, and it's building, it doesn't get to its hottest or brightest point until it completely consumes those pallets that it's burning. And I want to simply say this tonight. Neither can a Christian burn hottest or shine brightest for Jesus until his life has been completely consumed by God. You know, a life consumed by Jesus is a hard thing to hide. A life consumed by Jesus is a hard thing to hide. Matthew 5.14 says, You're the light of the world. A city that's set in a hill cannot be hid. It's hard to hide a city. Why? Well, because it's bright. You go to 
Jerusalem, or the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, you go to the Sea of Galilee tonight, and I'm told, I've not been there, but I'm told, I'm sure Pastor could verify this, that all around there's these little cities on these hills. And they light up the night sky. Why? Because you can't hide them. You can't cover them up. They're bright. They're shining. It's darkness. And you know what's interesting is that the more darkness there is, the brighter the light seems to be. If I was to get a lighter right now and I was to light it in this auditorium, it wouldn't look very bright at all. In fact, you probably, if you're sitting in the back row, you couldn't really hardly notice it. But if it was 12 o'clock midnight and we were all sitting in this auditorium and there was a complete blackout, none of the electricity was working, none of the streetlights were working, and it was a cloudy evening where the stars and moon weren't out, and I was to light this light, everybody in the room could see it. Why? Because the, as one preacher put it, the darker the night, the brighter the light. And can I simply say this tonight? When your life is consumed by Jesus, it's really hard to hide that. Obadiah lived a life that was concealed. He lived a life that was undercover. He didn't want anybody to know what he was doing. He didn't want anybody to know that he was a follower of God. He didn't want anybody to know that he feared God. And yet Elijah lived in stark contrast as a man who said, you can sign my name to the bottom of anything that says I love God because I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live for God. I don't care who knows about it. His life was consumed. Well, why? Why was it consumed? What made him so different? What made him different is because Elijah had given everything he had to God. Frankly, Elijah had lost everything he had. Obadiah went home every night to a, probably a comfortable bed. Obadiah went home every night to a meal that was prepared for him. Obadiah was able to raise a family without having to be very afraid. Now, I realize he had the prophets. He probably was, to some degree, afraid of that. But overall speaking, as far as anybody was concerned, Obadiah was toeing the line politically. Elijah lived at the brook um, Shedron. I'm not saying that right. But um, Elijah lived at, the, at a brook. <laughs> he was fed by ravens during this drought. Elijah was the number one most hated man in Israel. He had lost everything for God. But I'll tell you this. Elijah was the happiest man in Israel. Because of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, he was the only one who was standing up and preaching, proclaiming, that God was king, that what the people were doing was wrong, and that one day there would be judgment. And we see God blessing Elijah for that. We see God using him in so many different ways and so many different miracles. And really, ultimately, we see God using Elijah, who gave himself back to God, to really change the lives of thousands of people at the great revival at Mount Carmel. And so tonight... Is your life making a difference? Are you allowing God to make a difference in you? Well, how do you do that? It starts with being committed to the Word of God. It continues with being compelled by the fear of the Lord. And finally, you end up being consumed with a passion for God. You know what? If you'll do those things, if you'll commit your life to follow the Word of God, you'll get a real understanding of who God is and what He wants to do and what He can do. And then you'll just simply fall in love with them. God will use your life. And you'll have person after person after person after person one day when you get to heaven tell you, God used you to change me. God used you to impact me. So tonight, are you a difference maker for Jesus Christ? If you're not, you can be. Let's bow our heads and pray.